just a moment. Those that are still praying, just feel free to pray as long as they'd like. We're in week three of our series that we've entitled, What If? And I promised you at the beginning of this series, I'm going to make time at the end of each gathering for processing. So today we're going to have time for Q&A, because I'm going to say some crazy stuff today. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures, so if you have questions, please just jot those down, and we'll make room at the end to have comments and some discourse back and forth. But over the next two weeks, we're going to be leaning hard into this passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 10. It's very familiar. It says in verse 23, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now virtually all Bible scholars agree that capital D day there is referring to the day of the Lord. The second coming of Jesus Christ. We see that same Greek verb in Romans 13 where it says the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that day should surprise you like a thief. And Peter said it this way, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Wow, that's a little bleak. But we know that the Bible is filled with warnings that we should be aware, we should be ready for the end. Now, since this warning was written in Hebrews chapter 10, it's been current and applicable for 2,000 years. So you might say, well, Randy, if it's always been relevant, why is it suddenly urgent? Well... I'm 66 years old. I've been in church all my life. And I'm speaking to you observationally and not prophetically. But I just really feel with all my heart that the day, capital D Day, could happen at any moment. And I think this is a warning that's worthy of heightened awareness in the church. And i got a couple of big pieces of evidence I want to share about. That Number one, as... God has a long-term plan, so does the devil. John 10.10 says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 5.8, Stay alert! Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now church, Satan has a vengeful hatred for God. Therefore, he opposes, he does warfare against God's creation that God loves. So we need to be aware, first of all, that Satan has a plan. And secondly, we need to be aware of Satan's activity. The Bible talks a lot about the world. The Greek word is cosmos, and that means system. And it's plain, we see a global political system, a global economic system. And the activity of the devil in the systems of the world is very, very evident. Isn't it? Just consider some of the headlines, recent headlines. First of all, the pandemic. Well, you know, all the initial doomsday predictions didn't pan out. 
But have you ever seen such division and, and dissension over what has taken place? Immigration is a big problem in our country. It's a much, much bigger problem in Europe where refugees have fled to Europe and starting their own communities. But we can't begin to imagine the problem of immigration in many, many African countries. Where because of drought, thousands and thousands of people are crossing borders to find water or something to eat. And warlords are butchering babies and mothers. They're trying just to find something to eat to survive. We read about the Ukraine war all the time. And to this point, the U.S. has given about $24 billion dollars and that's not some conspiracy website. That's actually from defense.gov website. I just read last week that Great Britain has given hundreds of tanks to Ukraine. And last month, Russian President Putin threatened a preemptive nuclear strike. I wonder what that would bring about. The economy is in, in an unprecedented place. In, inflation, which affects all of us, is the highest it's been in 40 years. Bank failures, skyrocketing interest rates, and we have all the supply chain issues, the unemployment market is doing all kinds of strange things. And you notice we haven't talked about radical Islam in a while. Does anybody think that the radical Islamists have just gone away? They've, they've given up their agenda? Afghanistan is a dumpster fire right now because we left and the Taliban has taken over. But one thing that's, that's striking to me is the conversation I've seen about our electrical grid. I didn't know this stuff at all. But like, for example, around Valentine's Day 2021, there was a uh, winter storm in Texas that knocked out the power grid. Four million Texas were without power for five days. And just being without power for five days, 246 lives were lost. The experts now say that the cause of the, of the issue was power equipment, transmission equipment that had not been maintained. And the Texas authorities said we were about four minutes away from total grid collapse. Total grid collapse. What does that mean? I read about some testimony that's happened before Congress where experts are saying our electrical grid in the nation has not kept pace with technology. So consequently, we're vulnerable to, first of all, cyber attack, which Roger works for an electrical transmission company down in, in Grady and Caddo County. And where they used to go read meters, they don't do that anymore. Everything's automated, which makes it vulnerable to Internet attack. But I wrote also about an EMP, which an electromagnetic pulse happens um, naturally because of solar flares, but they're also um, can be caused by a nuclear detonation in the atmosphere. Now, an electromagnetic pulse is a super high energy radio wave, so your body would not feel it, but it knocks out anything electronic. And the experts, again, congressional testimony, Tell me that there are about 30 of these extra high voltage transmitters in our electrical grid that carry 70% of the nation's power. And if, if nine, and by the way, all of them are, are nearing the end of their 40 year lifespan, and we don't have any spares, but if nine of these HVTs were to be knocked out somehow, by a solar flare or by a cyber attack, we would have coast-to-coast -coast blackout lasting a year or more. That's called a black sky event. So you can imagine if we were out of power for a year, 
How many people would die? Thousands of people. Anybody that's on a ventilator or dialysis or dependent on power. And the experts say it's effectively like going back to the dark ages. All right, Randy, what are you saying? Are you trying to scare us? No, not at all. But what I am saying, there are currently today many factors in place where it wouldn't take much to trigger a global economic apocalyptic event. And I'm not saying that's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not saying even that the day is imminent, but it might be. It could be. So my goal in this series is simply to think, what if? We need a response plan. A biblical, godly, Holy Spirit-directed response plan. What should be the posture of the church in the last days? Okay, quickly review. Week 1, we looked at Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. And our two takeaways were, number 1, don't flinch in the face of opposition. And number 2, continue to strive to grow spiritually and become Christ-like. And week 2 is Romans 6, 11, And the two takeaways were, number 1, don't give in to the pull of the world. There's a great attraction to our sinful natures in this culture. Don't give in. Instead, give yourselves totally to spiritual things, to Jesus. And now Hebrews chapter 10 over these next two weeks, what I want to do is is identify three important things. Hopefully I can expose Satan's strategy a little bit, but I think there are three important things that each of us will desperately need in the last days. And because of that, these three things will absolutely come under attack by the enemy, and the Satan will do his best to destroy them. The three things are friends and family and community. So first thing I want to do today is to look at Hebrews 10 again, and I want us to redefine the word friend. What is a friend according to Scripture? Well, Hebrews 10 says it's one who will spur you on. To love and good deeds. A friend is someone who will tell you what you need to hear. A friend is somebody who will stick with you through hard times. Proverbs 17 says, A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born to help in time of need. Also, I believe a friend is one who knows everything about you and loves you anyway. James 5 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. Who knows your sins? So, why does the enemy want to redefine the term friend? Because a true friend is a huge source of spiritual strength. A true friend, I'm talking about one that tells you what you need to hear. One that will be there for you in hard times. One who knows your faults and still loves you are going to help you in hard times. Do you have a friend like that? Now, what do we mean when we say Satan wants to redefine the term friend? Let me tell you what a friend is not. A friend is not someone whose number is in your phone. I looked last week in preparing for this message. I have 800 contacts in my phone. I don't have 800 friends, but I got their phone numbers. Let me tell you also, a friend is not someone who wishes you happy birthday on Facebook. I did a little experiment. Last year on my birthday, I had 160 some people wish me a happy birthday. I had to go in half a day and, and type, thank you, I love you to each one of them. And that's fine, that's good. But I did a little experiment. 
This year, I went into Facebook and I removed that notification thing where it tells people that it's your birthday. And guess how many birthday greetings I got on Facebook this year? Zero. I passed the day in peace and quiet. <laughs> now, I got lots of cards from you. And I got notes from you. And I even got an offering from me. You know what? Because we're friends. So what I'm trying to say is, your friend is not a Facebook friend. Also, your friend is not someone you share interests with. I've heard a lot lately about uh, online community. Oh, I've got friends in the United Kingdom, and we talk about premier soccer. Those aren't your friends. And what I'm trying to tell you is that Satan wants us to have many, many acquaintances. He wants us to have superficial relationships that have no depth because there's no spiritual support there. But a true biblical friend is someone with whom you're on the same journey. Someone that you've decided, listen, I'm going to heaven and I don't want to go by myself. Will you go with me? Let's do this together. Also, a friend, listen, is someone who's more spiritual than you. Let me tell you what I mean. I'm not talking about mentor relationships, which we all need mentor relationships, where you have maybe a newer Christian that you can give them what the Lord has given you, and you need to be looking up to someone who's further along in the faith than you are that's mentoring you. But you also need a colleague, a peer, an equal. Well, Randy, you said they need to be more spiritual. Yeah, you judge that, not them. In fact, if you went to someone and they said that they were more spiritual than you, they're not. Can I just be honest? But you need someone who will humbly bring correction into your life. Because if I had a blind spot, I could just take the if out, can't I? Because we all have them. But if I have some behavior in my life that's destructive or harmful, and I'm unaware of it, maybe a friend would see the way that I'm talking to my wife or my children or the way I behave at work, a real friend would tell me. And if they wouldn't tell me, they're not my friend. Proverbs 27.9 says this, Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. And what I'm trying to tell you, church, is when the world begins to fall apart, you're going to need a friend. Do you think the devil knows that? Then the second big Satan wants to dismantle the family. I'm going to make a big statement, just a a blanket statement, and, and you may disagree, but I've got reams of supporting evidence if you want that. Here it is. The nuclear family, what we call the nuclear family, and I'm talking about a married parent unit, is critical to the survival of our society. Now, listen. I am not saying that everyone should be married. And I'm not saying that if you're not married, or if you're married and you don't have children, that you're somehow less important or less necessary. Because that's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying that the family dynamic as defined by God is vital in this culture. Now, Marriage is very rewarding, but companionship is not the purpose of marriage. And having children 
is the greatest thing in the world. But procreation will not fulfill you. The reason that the family unit is so important biblically is because, first of all, it's a physical demonstration of covenant. A promise upheld through all the messiness. Also, the family is laboratory for learning about cooperation and self-sacrifice and rule following. Do we need that in our culture? And finally, number three, the family is important because it demands an investment to something greater than ourselves. You invest yourself in a cause bigger than yourself. So the family is vitally important. Do you think the enemy knows that? All right. Everybody okay? I know this is not fun. Stay with me. I am not stunned by much. But I've seen some things on the news lately that are terrifying. Most recently, there are a large number of experts who claim to know what's best for our children. And they argue that they, the experts, and not parents should determine how children should be raised. I'm going to show you a couple little video clips. This is one that I stole off, I mean, I borrowed from Prager University that it's an interview of a lady at at an LGBTQ activist rally, and I'll just let it speak for itself. You small-minded right-wing parents don't get it, and you need somebody else to advise your kids on what's best for them. Let me share another little clip. This is from Congressional Testimony. It's a hearing on, the, on anti-LGBTQ violence. And I don't mean to have a theme here, but I just saw these. And this is a long clip that I actually cut just a few seconds out of. This is Rep- Representative Michael Cloud from Texas questioning a lady by the name of Jesse Pocock, who's the executive director of something called Inside Out, which is a nonprofit youth advocacy group in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Watch this little clip. Okay. So I don't know how you feel, but I'm offended that someone would claim to know better what my child needs than me. And that they're encouraging my child to go talk to them and not their parents. Now, how should we respond? This is what we're talking about. Um, Should we just ignore it? Hey, it's Colorado. Twelve-year-olds in Colorado. It's No. Listen. I'm going to say for Christian parents, there's no reason to panic. And there's no reason to become disheartened for a couple of reasons. Big reasons. Number one, those people have your kids for seven hours a day. You have them for 17. So as long as you're engaged, you're going to be fine. Reason number two. God, in His wisdom, put a genetic connection between you and your child that's unbreakable. And you can trust that connection. Now you might say, well, Randy, you haven't heard how they're talking to me. I get it. But you can trust that connection that God put between a parent and a child. Now, for parents, and let me just say, this advice is especially important for parents of young children. This is good for everybody. But if you have young children at home, please hear me clearly. Hebrews 10 says there's three specific things we need to do. Number one, we need to hold unswervingly to your profession. Back in 1998, my son was eight or nine years old. 
Phillips, Craig, and Dean came out with a song that said, I want to be just like you because he wants to be like me. And it's sung from the perspective of a father following God with fear and trembling because he knows his little child is following him. And I've, I've heard it a thousand times and I cry every time. It's powerful. So parents, what I'm asking is, what do your kids see in you? Because they really need you. You cannot afford to mail it in. you got to hold unswervingly to your profession. Now, here's the good news. Your example is way more powerful than your words. And here's the bad news. Your example is way more powerful than your words. And what I mean by that is, if you're trying to give your kid advice or correction, and they see that your behavior does not line up with your profession, why would they listen to anything you say? I think that's fair. Is your profession backed up by action? In other words, are you the same person on Monday at home that you were Sunday at church? Walk your talk. The second piece of advice I think that the Bible gives us is spur them on toward love and good deeds. Very cool little Greek word, paroxysmos, which means to incite, spur on. And even there's an implication of irritation. Irritate them. So many parents that come to me when their kid finally reaches adolescence and they say something like this. What happened to my sweet child? When did she get replaced by this snarling, eye-rolling monster? And I always say the same thing, and it's this. It's supposed to be that way. That's the way it's supposed to be. The final and perhaps most critical function that a parent has is something we call launching. At some time, your children are supposed to separate from you. Were you aware of that? They're supposed to go start their own lives. And it's your job as a parent to prepare them and you for that separation, right? So, obviously, when, when your kid becomes an adolescent, there's going to be some tension in the relationship. There's a season of their lives where you're an idiot. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way God set it up to be. But expert parenting prepares them to go out their life on their own. Now, many parents fail in this process because, number one, they try to protect them from life. They're always rescuing them from hard things. It's a mistake. And second, parents fail by trying to shape them into their particular mold. I see a lot of parents that are literally living their lives vicariously through their children. Terrible mistake. I saw something on Twitter a couple of weeks ago from a guy named Andy Crouch, who's a um, Christian author and pastor. And he says this. Let me share it with you. He says... The one opinion I've securely formed regarding kids specifically is this. There's nothing more seductive and more sad than winning at high school. High school is a game you shouldn't care to win, though some people do win. I mean the popularity game, the influencer game, the social game. Some kids, for a mysterious combination of reasons, have a shot at winning at high school. Sadly, their stories seldom turn out as they'd hoped. The really sad thing is it's not only kids who want to win at high school. The biggest reason parents make poor decisions about tech is they want their kids to win at high school. 
I've come to think of winning in high school as a kind of metonymy for all the games you're urged to play but shouldn't. Like don't win at high school, don't win at Harvard, don't win at Twitter, don't settle for anything but the life that really is life. And the truth is, listen, we all know this is true. You're not going to win in life. It's too big. It's too hard. Life is going to crush you. And your children have to learn that. So my question is, which is better for the child that you love? To learn under the protection of your roof that life isn't fair and life is hard? Or to learn out there in the cold, cruel world, which we call the school of hard knocks? Okay, so prepare your kids. Spur them on. Incite them. Irritate them a little. And number three, don't give up meeting together. As many are in the habit of doing. A common thread that I'm seeing now in big churches, it's really tragic. A lot of really big churches have a booming kids ministry. A beautiful kids wing and this parade of of kids, hundreds of kids in there on a Sunday morning. And then they have multiple services for adults. The parking lot's in and out and it's packed five or six or seven times on a Sunday. And youth ministry in these big churches is virtually non-existent. No teenagers. Why do you think that is? Let me ask you a question, parents. Are you, are you parents of young children? Are you listening to me? I didn't think you were. Would your teenager rather do homework or watch TV? Would your teenager rather eat vegetables or eat Doritos? Would your teenager rather go to a museum or a theme park? Now, nothing wrong with TV or Doritos or theme parks. What I'm asking is, what is better for them? What's better for their development? Now, your little children will inevitably arrive at the age where they don't want to go to church with you on Sunday. Given the choice, they'd rather stay home than go to church. And my question just is simply, which is better for their development? Oh, Mom, church sucks. I know, bring them anyway. Why would you even give them a choice? Now, in my humble opinion, if you had to choose one discipleship priority to your family, and I'm thinking about family altar, I'm thinking about scripture memorization, I'm even thinking about private school or homeschooling. If you could choose one discipline for your family, I believe that attending corporate worship should be primary. A couple of reasons why. Number one, it's hard. And that's the point. I know what it's like to get little kids ready. And some of you drive a long way and get little kids ready to get out the door and go to church on Sundays. And, and, and you say, um, I don't want that. It's hard. I don't want to do that, right? Well, it's still, it's what we're supposed to do. I've often questioned myself the wisdom of dividing church into age-appropriate segments. Because what happens is they have their own kids' church and then they have their own youth church and then they come in here and they go, I don't like this, why not? It's not for me. It's not designed for me. Oh, God forbid you should think about the needs of someone else like the Bible says, right? But what I'm trying to tell you is nobody becomes Christ-like naturally. 
You don't stumble into discipleship. And growing spiritually is a grind. And it's going to be a grind your whole life. True? Is that the truth? Self-sacrifice is required. So as godly parents, the discipline of submitting to the weekly meeting is great training. So, it's hard. Is a good reason to go to church every week. The second reason it's good to go to church every week is because it's a great habit to get into. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a cup of coffee with Ted. A lot of you know Ted. I hadn't seen him in years and years and years. But he used to work with our teenagers here. And he's living in Atlanta now. And there were several years, maybe ten years, where he was away from the Lord. Didn't go to church at all. And his wife went to church. And to support her, he started going. And Teddy told me when he went, they went to this big mega church in Atlanta. He said he didn't like it at all because it was really institutional and corporate and really, really impersonal. But he said, you know what I found out? Just going every week rekindled an appetite in me for the things of God. And now he's back following Jesus and doing great. But just because he started going, get back in the habit of going every week. When my wife and I were first married, there was a season when I was not following the Lord at all. But we never missed church. We went every single week because that's what we did. Her family and my family. We just went to church every week. It's a beautiful habit. So parents, the church will help you. Even though the church sucks, it will help you raise godly kids. So get them up and get them here. And finally, thirdly, corporate worship is important because it teaches that God is the center of life and not me. God is sovereign and not me. We currently have a depression crisis among Generation Z. This is kids in their teens and early 20s, and it's especially profound among teenage girls. It's relatively new. Experts say we started seeing the rumblings of this terrible epidemic in 2013, and then the numbers in 2015 just went off the charts. Well, what happened around that time frame? Well, in 2012... Facebook acquired Instagram, and that social platform exploded. In 2010, the iPhone 4 introduced the front-facing camera, and the selfie generation was born. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt is a guy that I really like to read. He says this, Kids are on their devices all the time, but boys play video games, often in groups. Girls are drawn to platforms that are about display and performance, like Instagram and TikTok. You post your perfect life, and then you flip through the photos of other girls who have a more perfect life, and you feel despair. It seems social because you're communicating with people, but it's performative. You don't actually get social relationships. You get weak, fake social links. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I've been in church all my life. Roger and I went to lots of different church fellowships when we were growing up. We moved a lot. But one thing, I've never, ever been in a church that did not have a senior citizen that had trouble getting around. I have never been in a church where there wasn't a couple that was trying to get pregnant and couldn't and struggle with that. Of all the churches I've been part of, I've never been to a church that didn't have one or two or ten kids with special needs. And I'm telling you, the reason that's so important is because we come to church and we look around and go, well, my life's not so bad. Maybe I'm not the center of the universe after all. Maybe there's somebody better than me and smarter than me. 
And what I'm trying to tell you, and I'm not saying we should take our kids' phones away. We can't put the genie back in the box. It seemed to work pretty good for the Amish. But we're not, I know we're not going there. I understand that. But God put parents in the lives of children to parent. So here's an idea. Let me just throw this out there. What if we did not allow electronic devices at the dinner table? Could we pull that one off? Is that something we could do? All right, I'm closing. The abuse is about to end right now. I had a little dose of reality this week in that Tom Green died. Tom Green was a very close friend of mine. He, he preached here not long ago. In fact, he was at our very first service, February 5th, 1995. When I was a youth pastor, Tom was the district youth director. So we worked very closely. And then his kids were in my youth group. We took vacations together. We've just been very close friends. But the last 20 years or so, our lives have kind of gone in different directions. And I still see him often. And every time I see him, Tom would, tears in his eyes, he would say, Randy, we've got to get together. We've got to spend more time together. Well, this last Thursday, he died suddenly at his home. Tough when you finally get to the age where people your age start dying, isn't it? A little scary. And so, over the weekend, I've had a lot of youth pastor buddies reaching out. We've been kind of reminiscing about things like that. But here's the truth. It's what I want you to hear me say. There's a lot of things in life that you cannot prepare for. But you can pursue godly friends and you can gather your family around you and be strategic about the function of your family. Because I'm telling you, when the world falls apart, and it will, I don't know when, when, but it will, you're going to need godly friends and you're going to need your family. Next week we'll talk about community. Heavenly Father, I pray somehow that we could hear Your voice in all the quotes and all the statistics and all the Scriptures. I pray that something will, will grasp us in our hearts. That we can hear what You're trying to say to the church. And Father, I think every single one of us is concerned about what we read in the news. We're concerned about current events. And, and Father, I, I just feel like that you're trying to get the attention of the church because so many Christians are just going about life in the wrong way. So, Father, for this fellowship, for Covenant Life Assembly, I pray that you'd speak clearly to us. Awaken us if that's necessary. And, Father, do in us what we need so that we have a posture. We'd be prepared. We'd be able to handle no matter what this world throws our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.